Oh my Claudia. God. Hi. <laughs> sorry. So sorry. I didn't, like, I knew we were recording, but like, LOL. Welcome back to Evilly Yours English. <laughs> yes. Welcome back. How are you? Better, thank you. Ugh. I might sound super hypernasal or hyponasal, mm. so please bear with me. Um, definitely not the day to be using a highly sensitive mic to speak into, but here we are. <laughs> I know, I know. I just, ugh. and I'm fresh out the shower, so I cleaned myself for you. You're welcome. Uh <laughs> wow. I did that. What a holy ritual. Because I was super ill the last couple of days, I actually managed to finish our book of the month ahead of time. I'm jealous. <laughs> um, that was like an unheard of event um just due to like i didn't have much else going on i had my um ipad on mega low mega yellow screen to fend off the sinus headache going on and i read that girl to the end so mm. uh yeah so you can you can do that too <laughs> thank you what was our book oh, i'm so glad you asked um this <laughs> month's oh course this month's book selection is mexican gothic by sylvia moreno garcia this book will follow noemi taboada a socialite from the 1950s mexico city who is beckoned to help out a cousin or rather her cousin i should say not just a cousin catalina in the mysteriously alluring yet dangerous high place where she meets her cousin's white English husband, Virgil, and a whole lot of the countryside. And listen, us city folk, if you really want to scare the crap out of us, you just put us in the country and we're just like, <laughs> hate that. Yeah, this isn't just country. This is like mega rural forgotten lands. Yo. Crime setting for a gothic novel. I mean, hold on, wait. Now this might show a level of like, me not realizing, but Wuthering Heights. Gothic? I think so. And they talk oh. about that in the book. I didn't get I, I I'm on like six. So girl, you finished. It is. It's a gothic fiction romance novel tragedy. Ooh, spicy. But yeah, like even from the little that I read of Wuthering Heights, it kind of like gives me that vibe. So like if you're down with Wuthering Heights in terms of the vibe, not necessarily the story, because it's a very different story, might be your jam. An NPR critic, uh, Jennifer Pewick, wrote, I want to discuss this book around tea, preferably while in the mountains, preferably somewhere well lit. I remember placing my bookmark in the book and thinking, I should not have read this before bed. I was afraid of what I might dream. Who? The pure result of a gothic story. Um, so, Claudia, what are, we, what are we talking about when we're talking mm -hmm. about this gothic genre? We know about romance genres and all that. Girl. So first of all, I do need to say with this genre, we're getting some horror fiction type deal. We're getting some historical fiction, uh, gothic mystery, fantasy thriller. At least this is what Goodreads is telling me. Um, but I don't know. So far, I'm, I haven't gotten the horror yet. I'm getting the suspense, but I'm sure it'll come with time. I think that makes sense that there's a whole literary genre um, called gothic but like Claudia when you first think of the word gothic what comes to mind I 100% am thinking about um because tonight will be the night that I will fall for you that's what I think of um and that's even better because like the emo subculture mm -hmm. is a more modern version of like like a like a sub branch off of gothic subculture yeah right and also you hot know topic. what else i think about yes i think about hot topic i also think about what i was striving to be when i was like 13 14 like i was a wannabe little baby goth with my like not even real gothic music it was like freaking yellow card <laughs> shit like come on <laughs> yellow card i'm crying I, listen there was a mosh pit at a yellow card concert that i went to with my sister i almost died <laughs> but yeah 
I mean, I think you think of these like people with their really intense white face makeup, Halloween mm-hmm. core all year round, um, and hard metal music. You might think of like industrial goths who do that crazy dancing. And that I'm gonna show, if you're watching, you're gonna have the pleasure of seeing a clip right here. Oh, I can't wait. Um, <laughs> skids, skids in letter, Kenny. Right. So like more insert the dancers right here. But you think of more of like this satanic aligned <laughs> subculture right mm-hmm. and as with anything is that really were there does this word come from a, like a, a clan of satan worshipers historically speaking no. no no it does not that's what i learned <laughs> <laughs> of course not so i have this very vivid eternally ingrained memory from high school um I know that the Western Roman Empire fell in 1066 CE because mm-hmm. of a Germanic Gothic tribe. Yes. Um, this is kind of where I started to learn about the um, history of the word Gothic, because even then at, in my you know world history class, I was like, why were they called Goths? Like, why was that what they were? The term Gothic comes from late Latin Gothi, and then it became French Gothique, which I think is how I'm going to say it from now on. <laughs> or it's probably gothique, like, actually. I mean, you'd know more than me. You're the one doing Duolingo du- French. <laughs> I'm almost at 300 days. Oh, I just can't break my freaking streak. Damn you it. You can't, ma'am. You can't. <laughs> Duo's already harassing me. Anyway, go on. It's just a word relating to these East Germanic Goths who were not Roman Catholic. They had a language which was described as Gothic. They And then later on, there was um, architecture that became called gothic mm-hmm. and then we know the medieval font is also gothic <laughs> um so why are all these things getting lumped together what is the what do the germanic tribes have to do with anything essentially when this these tribes collapsed the roman the western roman empire um all of europe western europe collapsed into the dark ages dark um this is when this gothic style of architecture and art and this constant obsession with death kind of appeared for the first time middle ages were very much about like we're suffering in life to you know make peace whatever with death uh, we're not going to get too much into all that here basically classical civilization was dead and this barbaric takeover also these tribes were definitely pagan which adds to it you know there's a huge overlap in the venn diagram of goth and paganism <laughs> as goth as we know it but also uh just in case what does pagan mean because you know not everyone was raised in some sort of like religious like sector so what the hell is pagan so pagan folks were basically pre um monotheistic big three religions or even existing around the same time as their um onset these are the folks who believed in everything else so you could consider ancient greek mythology a pagan faith egyptian pagan druids pagan pagans and then we have wicca wiccans that's pagan Mm mm-hmm there's a lot of nature worship, alignment with, you know, planetary movements and just kind of finding spiritualism within nature. Druids. That would have said Stonehenge, <laughs> pagan structure. Yes. You know, um, versus what is accepted it for faith these days. You know, for the most part, we've got Christianity, Islam, mm-hmm. Judaism. Those are our big three monotheistic religions. Those are not considered pagans because they consider everything else to be pagan. So right. how did goth go from a tribe to the subculture that your parent your parents hate? Not mine. Mine actually think they're goth. Um, so I found a website called whatisgoth.com. I-, I love it. Very to the point. And it informed me that put simply, put simply, a goth is someone who finds beauty in things others consider dark. They love all that is dark and mysterious. That doesn't mean goths are evil. Oh my god, so I am so goth I because... Oh, Shy Guy speaks. I'm sorry, Claudia. Uh-huh. Technology and goth. Well, goth like Visigoth tribes, sure. <laughs> in some, I think the most important thing to take away about the change, like the shift of the word goth is that... Um, when you're looking at a word, you need to know about repurposing connotations. So throughout, from the very start, when Gothic, whatever, was referring to these pagan Germanic tribes, there was a darkness about them. Then there was a Gothic architecture of the Dark Ages, and then there was, then there's the Dark Goths of today, um, <laughs> which also <laughs> they're dark. 
high key, we are goth because we find beauty in darkness. Like, in the dark items, thinking about, like, Tim Burton. Tim Burton's hella goth. Like, come on. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and then that makes I Miss You a goth song because they mention Jack and Sally. That's true. But then I also... Okay, then what would be the distinction between, like, yo, that is so, like, goth versus that's hella metal? You know what I mean? Because I feel like when you are saying, like, bro, that's metal, like, it's it can almost be very similar to that meaning. So metal specifically is the music, right? Mm-hmm. And I do think there's an overlap with metal music within goth culture. Like, there's Nordic black I mean, metal, yes. which goth subculture members would listen to metal is its own culture though and metal is its own you know and then you have black Mm -hmm. but gothic people might listen to it but then there's also then gothic specific music the venn diagrams man (laughs) again they are separate they're separate but they're related in their appreciation of like what is what is dark i think metal technically is a more aggressive genre Mm. of music no 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 it's more so the like the phrasing like the phrases whenever like something like dark happens that they're just like bro that's metal not necessarily the music genres themselves i think also there's a more a bigger stigma for goth and you wouldn't use goth to describe something like that that's so metal like because metal goes hard goth is soft you know the cure in the 80s Uh uh-huh yeah. They would be considered goth. And their music's much softer than metal. Their music's new wave now. But it's new wave goth. Right? But here, I like this this comment on authenticity. Metal tries to preserve authenticity by upholding high standards. Goth tries to preserve authenticity by abandoning standards. Okay. All right. So if you do want more information, we're going to leave a, a link to this really quick, great Ted Ed talk about um, the history of goths. It'll just kind of better summarize and give you more facts about what we were just talking about yeah and less probably tangents than what we had just now uh- <laughs> <laughs> but going back to the setting and the genre claudia um yeah. so i guess now we can kind of see how this is a gothic genre right like it takes place in this victorian mm-hmm. house victorian era itself in england is so goth Ugh. not so metal right. though. so goth not metal it's not goth. metal not metal <laughs> To better understand this, uh, the high high place, if you will, um, we do need to discuss a few things. So first, the Mexican countryside, along with uh, English colonialism and coal mining. I know it sounds like these things have nothing to do with each other. Yeah, because I could have sworn <laughs> Mexico was conquered, and Mexico being where this book takes place, I could have sworn Mexico was conquered by the Spaniards. It and- was. Like, I... Ma'am, I'm sorry, I cut you off. I'm just, I'm, I'm very excited because out of the two of us, Christina is more of the history person. And so I'm like, oh my God, I researched history, go me. But when we are thinking about, um, at least like when Mexico and the UK kind of came together, um, I liked this one fact. The UK was actually the first nation to recognize Mexico as a sovereign state in 1821. Uh, obviously this is after they claimed their independence. Um, and so the UK was like, hell yeah, y'all are your own peoples. I love that for you. Boom. I also came across, uh, the pastry war and I, I, okay. First of all, am I the only one that envisioned a, a croissant? Cause that was me. Literally. I was just like, croissant. <laughs> There's just going to be croissant all over the screen. As there should be. I just want, I want Croissants just rain, raining down on me. Croissant. Yeah, you're welcome. Ew. So uh, the pastry war, it literally spanned a little over three months. Um, despite the years listed on our doc being 1838 to 1839, it was literally like the end of that year to like the first couple months of, that, of uh, the following And so it was against Mexico and France. And, like, France was, like, super controversial, like, overall. Um, At least even thinking about, like, in terms of their colonialism, super controversial. So in this case, there was a rising. 
from the claim of a French pastry cook. Tacubaya is near Mexico City and um, some Mexican ar army officers, they had damaged his restaurant and this led to like everyone basically like being pissed off about this. And ultimately, unfortunately, the French won. Um, because, probably because there was a lot of pastries, you know, croissants at stake. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry to the French, they're gonna hate me. Anyway, um, but um, the UK, I know I was talking about France so much, but the UK came to support Mexico and helped to find a diplomatic end to this war. I feel like this isn't going to go in, the, in a good direction, though. I, I knowing the Brits, knowing the Brits, but also knowing the history of the English and the French too. Like I feel like oui. low key, <laughs> wait, I feel like low key, the UK was like. Bro, we just acknowledged you as like a sovereign. We're coming in, but not to like help, just to be a petty, petty little Betty, because of how much they hated the French. Like to an extent that they were just like, "Hey, girl, Francois, nah, fuck out of here." You know, Com like coming through with the spotted dick. Yeah, and then giving them the peace sign and wiggling their fingers. You know, moving on. We also have something called the Cornish diaspora. Um, which happened primarily during uh, 1861 to 1901. And so we have these Cornish people, also known as people from Cornwall, UK, and their descendants who were emigrating from the UK. They settled, you know, in different parts of UK, of course, but they also settled in my, one of my culture countries, Argentina. Ew, look at that flag. Um, New Zealand and Mexico. And so many who emigrated were miners looking for a better life, looking for more work. And so many worked in silver mines in the province of Hidalgo. And um, if you even look at like some of the, I even put a link in Real de, de Monte. It is one of the two Mexican cities that are known as Mexico's little Cornwall. Um, and so like, the reason why it's called that besides the fact that there are so many that settled there from that were Cornish or from Cornwall. Um, they also have like a Cornish look to them too, in terms of their structures and everything. And it's, I find very interesting that Mexican Gothic is set here for a number of reasons, because honestly, there are so many cities in, in Mexico that like, you she she could have literally chosen any of them but she chose these in particular and i think part of it is likely because of the racial intonations that or in inequality i should say not intonations the racial inequality there as well as like class and labor inequality that likely happened during this time as well um and so when we are thinking about all these types of inequalities, they tend to, to fester and they tend to even infuse to the landscape and even become transgenerational. Is that a word? Did I just make a word? Okay, great. It's a word. I love it when I, when, when I say words and, and it's correct. Um, and I mean, of course, we're going to talk more about that in the book club episode but something else that is touched upon is uh something called eugenics and i was wondering if you could talk to me about eugenics my my, my lady let's get into our history part two here so i'm over here reading this book and i'm like this is a, this blend of things makes so much sense because what is eugenics Let's start with the modern definition of it, and then I'll walk you through a brief history of the eugenics movement in the Americas. America's plural because it is, there's a huge presence of it in, in the United States let's to this day. Go, let's go. So the National Human Genome Research Institute, the people behind genomics and the study of the human genome. Ooh, sorry presently defined eugenics as the scientifically erroneous and immoral theory of racial improvement and planned breeding. 
Um, this had originally gained popularity in the early 20th century, which is exactly when this story is taking place, kind of just at the tail end of when people are looking more objectively at sciences. Um, but in the mid-late 1800s into the early 1900s, you know, we had Darwin doing his thing. But as any white person looking for justification would do, they're going to look at this research coming out that doesn't have like a full scope. It's just like correlations. And they're going to say, I bet we can categorize people too. And I bet there are measurements we can take of the skull. These eugenicists would measure your skull to de determine how intelligent you were based on the size of your brain. And different cultures um, would have uh, different markers to then deem them less superior or inferior. So there are a lot of traits that were measurable that these white eugenicists would utilize to justify their racism. So this was kind of the birth of racism as we know it. Have there, has there always been racism? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. We know this because America's the Americas were colonized. <laughs> what else is there to say? Because <laughs> because slavery. But now, Basically. with slavery being outlawed in America, in the Americas, and in you know slowly in other places, um, other colonized areas trying to find independence, white guys are like, oh, I have to justify this somehow because I know I'm not wrong. Confirmation bias, anyone? Mm. So they're using this, these pseudosciences, phrenology, and the principles of eugenics to globally um, take advantage of, you know, handpicking their race. It sounds sci-fi, which, you know, we've, of course, seen this principle in sci-fi stories. Um, every, like, dystopian story has this plot of selective breeding, like only some of the women can breed or, like, you can pick and choose the genetics, the DNA features on the chromosomes and mm -hmm. stuff. So one of the problems that the uh, National Library of Medicine was critiquing about eugenics was a selective breeding process provides unfair advantages over those who over those parents who cannot afford to endow offspring with the rights or preferred biological traits. Mm -hmm. So eugenics is yet another humanitarian issue because only some people would have access to it. In principle, if you wanted to use this like infertility clinics or something mm -hmm. or and you wanted to design a baby, this is where the ethics come in, right? Yeah. Do you want to be able to control what genes are expressed and what are not? I would love to knock out a BRCA gene in a family that has a history of breast and ovarian cancer, right? Right. But then we have this issue with designer babies, even with like yes. with dogs too. We have designer breeds oh. too. So it's just, it's, are we just dogs? It, it's more about the approach at which I guess it's like, you, you look at it, I, I guess. Cause like, if it is in the sense of like, like you said, you're preventing some sort of harmful gene um, from expressing itself versus saying, hmm, you know what I would love? I would love a child with like blue eyes and, and like dark hair crazy like again it's all about the approach I guess at which that you utilize these resources but I feel like many are utilizing it for the sole fact of designing versus preventing something that's exactly it when I was taking physical anthro thank you oh two slices oh I got pizza hell yeah when I was taking physical anthropology in college um this was a huge plight that geneticists were kind of like well the principles of being able to isolate like a gene and removing a disease or something that's undesirable or could harm the baby's life is so great, but it's being hindered by folks who want the, the red hair gone or the blue eyes mm -hmm. or the whatever and or or skin tone. And right. Yeah. And if you even think about it, at least thinking back to like Disability Awareness Month, if. I know, I know. If let's say, um, just the Down syndrome chromosome is expressed, then it just, you know, it, it could completely eradicate like a whole, like, I, I don't know how to phrase it correctly, but it's just like potentially can- Literally a whole group of people. Yeah, you can, thank you, words. You can absolutely do that. Down syndrome is not bad. And I feel that many would treat it as such when given that option, if that makes sense. 
Yep, that's exactly another crisis, is who decides what's a bad gene to be expressed or not. It's allowing people to play God. And Bingo. it's just, it's a scary, scary thought to think that some people are playing God. From here we get the ideology of the Ubermensch, and this is closely, uh, eugenics is closely associated with Nazism mm-hmm. and the whole premise of the Holocaust. Um, so, <laughs> anyway, so it's giving colonizer. Um, especially in the setting of the novel, the time and the place and everything you were just summing up makes a lot of sense. So, uh, unsurprisingly, pretty early on, we learned that the patriarch of this white family that, um, Noemi goes to stay Mm -hmm. with, Howard Doyle, is a raging eugenicist. And Noemi happens to be studying or wants to get a master's degree in anthropology. Yep. Go off, brilliant queen. Yes. So she, he, he and she exchanged some words and ideologies. Mm-hmm. And right away, she marks him for what he is, a racist, mm-hmm. period. Um, no amount of head measuring is going to change that. Nope. So she has the knowledge she's equipped with as well, and she's able to mark him as such right away. And she knows as a Mexican native, she's got darker features and mm-hmm. everything, and he comments on this. She's uncomfortable, like, right away. Um and she immediately is like, I, I don't care. I know I'm aware you think I'm inferior, but I don't care. Because I'm and she's not. Gonna, right. Um, and this will, you know, this will, this is a very important mindset that is going to come up throughout the entire story. Um which also begs the question, if he's a eugenicist and he highly believes in um, the superior race of white whatever, um, and she also mentions that the family all has a very similar look, kind of like what you were saying with the Cornish mm-hmm. cases. Mm-hmm. She's kind of like, why did uh, the son Virgil marry my cousin Catalina? Mm-hmm. So we're going to just um, leave you with those thoughts, I think another very important motif or rather i should let you know what a motif is it's a reoccurring symbol or pattern that happens throughout a story um and in this case it is the auroboros 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 no, Ouroboros is the thing in the sky. Oh, and I Aurora. Saw, oh no, you're thinking of Blue Lagoon. You're talking about Bora Bora. Oh no, you're talking about What the fuck is that? She mentions that she keeps seeing a snake devouring itself in the house. Girl, that's just mythology. She needs to pipe down. <laughs> well, it's a Greek word and it's one of our words of the month. Well, Ouroboros. Mm. It's like on the gate when she gets in. Yes. And then she yes, keeps yes. seeing it. I feel like you wrote this note for me. You didn't write it for the people. You wrote it for me. Uh, <laughs> so essentially, this keeps on showing up. It's very important for the Doyle family and their beliefs. Even though I've only seen it one time, I'm going to see it again, though. I'm going to see it again, and I know it. And so we got to pay attention, which I will now. So you know how, like, in um, Slytherin House, the serpent is in- it's intrinsically inherently part of their identity Mm -hmm. so the Ouroboros does the same for the Doyles now when I was reading it uh, I was like why do these why is this like white racist British descendant family like into this snake devouring itself and it was such a gross thing and the more we learn about the family the grosser this gets which which is horror so essentially the imagery and I'll insert one if you're watching the imagery is it's a snake or a dragon depending on what part of the world you're getting this from, it's in a circle or an infinity symbol and it's consuming itself. And it's the idea that creation will devour itself. So the endless cycle of creation and destruction comes from the Greek ouroboros, ura meaning tail and boros meaning eating. So it's the eternal cyclic renewal of life and death and the snake sloughing off its skin over and over again could symbolize in some um, paganistic beliefs the transmigration of souls, so from one generation to the next. I can see that. Yeah, it's, it's a creepy-ass symbol. So gross. That's a motif because it literally is going to creep up on her 
throughout the entire story in this house on called High Place. In more in more ways than one, I would assume. So now it's time for what's, what's in a name? name? This is your favorite part where we dissect our characters' names and try to predict their future. Claudia, <laughs> tell us about our protagonist. We have our protag, Miss Noemi, and her name is of French origin, meaning good, pleasant, lovely. I'm sorry, I feel like I keep hitting my mic. There we go. So sorry. We're doing amazing. This is why we can't not record for a while because then we forget how to do things. So anyway, it is the French vari variation of the biblical Hebrew name Naomi, which means again, good, pleasant, lovely, and wisdom. Um, and so one of the other things uh, we see um, within the Bible with Naomi is we see that she is compassionate, caring, empathetic to individuals. She also values relationships, prioritizes the needs of others, is approachable. In the Bible, Naomi, uh, she shows up in the book of Ruth and it depicts the struggles of Naomi and her daughter Ruth for survival within the patriarchal environment. And so, I mean, seeing this this survival within the patriarchal environment the house at which she of which she is coming from is a patriarchal household to an extent because it's one of those situations like in um in my big fat greek wedding when um tula i think it was tula's mom that she says the uh the husband is the head of the house but the woman is the neck and can move um the head any which way that she that she desires and so with that in mind, although uh, Noemi's uh, father is the head of the household, she can easily dictate which way things go with her father. Um, and she's very much used to getting her way with men. It's something that's said a lot within even the, the few chapters that I have read thus far. With this in mind, she is trying to survive this particular uh, patriarchal environment of the Doyle house. And so I do think that she will come out on top. Um, and I think she will come out on top primarily because of the compassion and caring nature that she has for her cousin. Because right now that's her primary motive to figure out what the hell is going on and to get her cousin Catalina out this damn house mm -hmm. I would say this character from the perspective of just starting the book is aptly named what, mm -hmm. what do you think hell yeah hell yeah oh yeah I think this was one of those names the author very meticulously selected also fun fact about fun fact about the the name Catalina which is her cousin's Please. name it's my confirmation name yeah, I picked it because thank you. I picked it because it was the day before the names were due and it went really well with my name. And it also started with a C. <laughs> this is why you shouldn't let 13 year olds pick their, their confirmation names. So Catalina is her cousin, Noemi's cousin. Uh, and I think the two of them have distantly related like biblical names, mm -hmm. right? So Noemi is a shift from Naomi in the Old Testament. Catalina is a Spanish version of Catherine, mm -hmm. um, which means pure. And we know about Catherine of Alexandria, who was a saint, St. Catherine, as in the St. Catherine. Mm -hmm. um, this is not of Siena, correct? This is of Alexandria. I'm just I didn't know sure. there were two. Yeah. You would know. Girl, I only know because of this one particular religion teacher who she loved Catherine of Siena. That is literally the only reason why I know this. Find out what that person's relevant for. Got him. St. Catherine of Alexandria appeared to Joan of Arc and counseled her, and she's considered one of those great martyrs. Um, so while Rome was still paganistic, she converted to Catholicism, and she was persecuted for it. Whatever, she was starving, she was tortured. People would come to see her, and she would be... They would be punished for converting to Catholicism in her name. I'm sorry. Really quickly, when I looked up Catherine of Siena, this is the photo that came up. 
Is that a bird's nest? What? What? Is that a crown of bird's nest? Um, no, it's a thorns. I forget. I forget. Hold on. Wait. I need to. I need to reel it back. I forget that out of the two of us, I am the one that you're the Catholic one. Yeah, I'm the Catholic. I forgot. I forget. <laughs> I forget. So I'm so sorry. That was that was not me. <laughs> but it does look like a bird's nest. It does. I will give you that. From an early age, she wanted to devote herself to God. Against the will of her parents, there was this pope. Pope Gregory the 11th, I want to say, he made this decision to leave this one place for Rome and he sent Catherine to negotiate peace with Florence. She apparently dictated to secretaries her set of spiritual treatises. There were numerous letters sent. She died exhausted by her, by her rigorous fasting. That's metal. See, that's metal. That's metal. That's metal. What you said was she sent a lot of letters. Catalina sends letters to Mexico City asking for help. Um, and you said she was fasting. And Catalina is so sick in her current disposition that she's not eating very much. Thank you for that for that connection. Because literally, I was just like, I mean, yes. But I, also, that can't be the only reason why she's known. Listen, maybe, there's a lot of saints, bro. Maybe Catholic.org will be helpful. I was on Wiki before, so I'm crying. So that's on me. Other Catherine, like the famousest, most famous one. Yes. Um, she ends up uh, dying um, and claiming that she was like married to Jesus and like her virginity was consecrated by him. I think this name was a little harder to directly like create that parallel whereas noemi like right away like you literally when you were looking at it you were like wait who am i reading about noemi or the bible naomi so hear me out um with catalina i do think that there is a purity to her personality so like if you think about like mm -hmm. the way that that naomi describes her cousin She's very idealistic, her cousin is. Um, she yes. very much like has romanticized a lot of different things within her life. And so to me, I kind of associate that with a sense of like naivete or even like purity. Because you haven't been hindered in any way to see something outside of rose-tinted goggles. And then of course, her connection with, with both Sienna... And, and Alexandria. Um, I would also assume that there are some, there's maybe a sense of like some sort of visions that may have come to her in some way, whether in the form of a dream or because something prompted her to write this letter. And clearly it scared her enough to write this unhinged letter. Um, and then... Doo, 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 doo. If you think about it too, she is imprisoned at High Place as well. Your, your point just made it beautifully clear why her name is Catalina to me, actually. I think the combo of saints and the meaning of her name being pure. And then this like imprisonment. I can't... Duh! Like she's literally imprisoned and she's seeking assistance sort of and... And what's wild is she's not even imprisoned in the house. It's a room. A room. <laughs> she's sick, they say. Mm. So. Dike sick. Dike sick. I'm about to find out. Mm -hmm. So given that gothic concepts are going to be very related to like Catholic concepts, I think this was a very, uh, now I actually think this was a good choice for her and it was a little bit more mental gymnastics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I, we stand. Go off catholic.org sweetie sweet so catalina our imprisoned pretty princess who is so romantic and loves her fairy tales snow white actually comes up a lot in this book plot of your fave Blech. um the the man who swept her away and married her after a few months of just knowing each other uh his name is virgil mm. um so virgil to me you know 
I'm like a British guy in Mexico named Virgil. I don't know. That's giving me like deep South in America. It is. And it just just wasn't, right? So, however, I will walk you through Virgil. (laughs) The Aeneid, which is the Roman counterpart to the Odyssey and the Iliad, was written by Virgil um, in the Roman Golden Age. Um, So in Dante's Divine Comedy, which is centuries later, something that's written, um, Divine Comedy being the Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso, um, the guide who takes Dante into hell and purgatory and paradise is a shade of Virgil. I thought the first thing that was interesting about that was because Catalina is a name related to a saint, mm-hmm. a saint's, saint's walk, you know, they transcend time and space. Uh, I thought it was interesting that Virgil is also a shade of a person who is a very important memory to those who revere him. Um, that was my mm. first thing. Uh-huh. Uh, <clears throat> so Virgil in the underworld, hell. Uh, so hell, the inferno, there's nine concentric circles of torment within the earth. Um, it's, quote, the realm of those who have rejected spiritual values by lead- yielding to bestial appetites or violence, by perverting their human intellect to fraud or malice against their fellow men. Super important, you know, we, we in- instantly get like a creepy vibe off of him when we meet him. Uh, we know Noemi's father dislikes him strongly. And he's the eldest uh, surviving um, progeny of Howard, the patriarch of this household. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, you know, he's essentially the, the man of the house because Howard's dumb old. Yeah, like, it, it's, it's giving he abouts croak type deal. It is. Now, giving. why would Howard have named his son Virgil? Well, Virgil actually just simply means, in Latin, the derivative means flourishing. And we know this man is a eugenicist, and he's all about superiority. So, of course, he wants his eldest, handsomest, charmingest son to flourish. So, two things on that. Um, first thing, I, I love how he's trying to manifest flourishment, um, even <laughs> though their um, family's not doing great financially, it seems, based off how they're upkeeping their house. So, you know, manifest destiny in, I guess, many ways. Uh, for the Doyles, um, but also Florence means flourishing. Um, so that is two elders. Yeah, Florence being the sister of Howard, I believe. So Virgil's mm-hmm. aunt. I feel like whenever someone with the name Virgil is um, <laughs> presented in a movie or even in a book, they are typically not necessarily like the villain, but they have like villainous ideals mm-hmm. or tendencies. Like it also doesn't help that he's That's hot. So like, yeah, hmm. Aryan <laughs> nation out here. So, Oh, I didn't look up what Howard means, bro. <laughs> oh, bet. Florence and Virgil were aptly named because of the irony that they're not flourishing, at least to the, to the onlooker. <laughs> And their purpose is to flourish. Wait, wait. <laughs> so I need to share. I, I found in CollinsDictionary.com. Howard in American English, noun, a masculine name. <laughs> uh, no, wait, that works though. A masculine name. <laughs> Why? Why is that the definition? Oh my god. Oh. oh my god, that was fantastic. Thank you, CollinsDictionary.com. I appreciate the hell out of you. Okay, now I have something real. Okay. <laughs> ah, it's English. Okay, so I have a few. Because apparently Howard is utilized in different regions and might mean different oh. things in different regions, evidently. But I think they kind of are, like, related. So... It says, in English baby names, the meaning of the name Howard is Bold Heart, Hogwarden, Chief Guardian. Hogwarden? Hogwarden, that's what I said. I didn't stutter. (laughs) I didn't stutter. Derived from... Oh, I got you, I got you. Derived from the Old German, Halgard, Scandinavian. (laughs) Meaning is Noble Watchman. 
Teutonic? Like Germanic. Okay, making sure. Defender. And then American baby name meanings? Defender. I guess Defender is apt. Really? Because I figured Hogwarten really, really was the one. I think a masculine name is actually the best one, knowing he's a eugenicist. Oh my. Origin, Norse. Other origin, uh, yeah, other origin, German, meaning High Guardian Heart Brave. High Guardian is the one. I'm a fan of Hogwarten. Me too. Defender, Hogwarten, and High Guardian and Brave. Hell yeah. Okay. I think she picked that name on purpose. For him, though, I don't think it's as obvious. We know he's a racist, dying patriarch. So I think you can see, like, a name Howard works because it's a masculine name. Um, it's a super white name. It's only from super European origins. Um, it's like the whitest name you know. It um, is. And then these, I think these other meanings, especially Hogwarten. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's a miner, so not even Hogwarten. Damn. They, they, have, they mine silver. They used to mine silver. But uh, High <laughs> Guardian, I think, will come into... Um, very high importance at some point. Noted. So oh, that I'm brings up. us <laughs> yep, to Francis. Francis! Uh, so literally when we're looking at, at Francis, it means free man. And so it's embodying the spirit of uh, liberation from, like, even liberation from sin and death. Um, I always think about St. Francis of, Assi- of Assisi. Um, who is the patron saint of animals and the environment. So go off, King. Um, Really cute. Uh, And I think a lot of uh, Catholic institutions still practice this. On St. Patrick, St. Francis of Assisi Day, everybody brings their animals to get blessed by the priest. It's really sweet. And so there are three vows that Franciscans uh, take, which is one of poverty, chastity and obedience um and honestly speaking from experience franciscan brothers are pretty chill just saying um but uh it is said that saint francis had a vision of jesus in which he said francis francis go and repair my church which as you can see is falling into ruins and so thinking about the character francis um he is Florence's son, correct? Yeah. And so essentially he is Virgil's cousin? Yep. Great. So I think Francis and his mother Florence were aptly named. I think those were also very deliberate choices. We talked about, uh, I mentioned this earlier about how I'm getting like kind of Wuthering Heights vibes, at least from the setting, because it's very unruly. It's very like, ouch. Uh, it's very unkempt in that sense and like it's also very mysterious very spooky and you know at a glance you would think that it is falling into ruins and even the way that uh noemi uh describes it even within it's falling into ruins with the exception of the silver that is preserved in its casings um and so francis is always at least again in the chapters that i have read he is always very kind to uh, Noemi. He is literally the only one that's kind to her <laughs> thus far. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it almost seems as if he is going to hold the secret of which she is seeking um, to maybe help. Oh, okay. Wow, look at me. Look at me picking up on signs. <laughs> um, in terms of saving Catalina or even better yet, defending Catalina against the Doyles in some way, um, despite him being of the Doyles. He's kind of the the one that sticks out from them. So that's my prediction. Mm-hmm. That's my predict. Yeah, so she comments that he has like a familiar Doyle look, I think when once she meets mm-hmm. the rest of them, um, but he doesn't like look like Virgil. Yeah, he's not as hot as Virgil, basically. Um, and I think he might be a little, at least the way I've envisioned him, I don't remember there being like a legitimate like thing that he's kind of like scrawnier in comparison to Virgil. Oh, she says it. Yep. But like he cute, like he, he's like a cutie. 
Yeah, and he's just very tender towards her, where the rest of them are, like, stereotypically British, cold, rule-oriented, don't talk at dinner time, I'm gonna chastise you. Mm-hmm. It's great that these are the two cultures that... Oh, yeah. ...that Moreno Garcia chose, because I think these are oh, the, the two that, that could be almost the most, like, opposite from one another. That, like, if you're thinking about, like, Hispanic culture, we're loud, we're in your face most of the time, bright colors, and then you have English culture, which, like you said, at least in terms of environment, not all the people. (laughs) Sterile. Very sterile, very cold. um, Victorian. Like, I just think of, like, to to put it, I think of the royal family a little bit, like. Yeah, I'm thinking of you, Prince Harry. Love, little redheaded stepchild. Love you. So I think having these two cultures um, that are typically so very different is a very smart choice. What's creepier than a racist white family in a dilapidated, haunted Victorian house in the mountains? Like what's scary and with British with old school British values, what is more creepy and gothic than that? Especially to Noemi, like you said. She was dancing in Mexico City, dating different boys every week. Now driving. there isn't even any driving, smoking cigarettes. Now there's no music at all. Nothing in every sense. Contrast. All this to say, so far in these chapters, I think Moreno Garcia has made excellent choices. And I can't wait to finish it. In terms of things you need to know before diving in, that's all we got for you for right now. Um, But it's okay, because you know we're going to bring more to you uh, with our next recording. As always, the pod notes will be available via Google Docs on our link tree, baby. And tell the people where they can find us. So we are on YouTube, obviously, if you're watching our beautiful faces right now. Um, but we are on Instagram. We are on TikTok at English. If you're listening to us, you're probably listening to us on Spotify, but you can also find us on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Music. And I think I think I like submitted us free our like RSS feed to some other podcasting hosts. Hell yeah. So I do think we're in other places. I just lost track. Mm. So if you hear us and you're someone in one of those places, DM us so I can include that <laughs> and shout you out because I literally, I don't know. Because... But- all of you you'd be doing us a solid for letting us know so please and thank you <laughs> yeah we lost track um so thanks for listening to our prep episode not to be confused with preparation h <laughs> maybe that maybe that doesn't work <laughs> god i can't we'll see y'all in two weeks so yep you got the month of September to read up on Mexican Gothic and we will chat with you then. Yeah. Bye. Bye.